Good afternoon, everybody. I'm Anshuman Gupta. I cover pharma and healthcare at Investec Capital. Uh, as part of the ongoing pharma expert series, we are hosting the GS, GSK PLC IR team here. Uh, welcome to both of you, James and Daniel. Thank you. So, I would, I would, I would request you to just start with an overview of uh, GSK, and then uh, you know briefly reflect on uh, the first quarter results. Uh, okay, I'll start on just on GSK as a whole. So, um, I'm not sure what the level of knowledge on the call is, um, but essentially GSK is a business with um, a, a group with. Um, Three divisions, um, pharmaceuticals, vaccines, and consumer. Um, in, uh, in 20, in 2020, sorry, 2019, uh, the group had revenues of about 30, 33.7 billion, um, uh, pounds, and the majority of that was over 50% where that was pharma. Um, consumer was, was roughly 20% and the rest, uh, that, that is roughly 20% and the rest was consumer. Consumer is a joint venture between ourselves and Pfizer, so the consumer business, um, we did a merger with the, the Novartis consumer business back in 2015. That was bought out, um, in 2018. We now have a joint venture with Pfizer. Um, and we own 68% of it, 32% of it, and within three years we plan to separate the company into two, into two, uh, into two new companies. One will be a pharma vaccine company and the other one will be a consumer company. Um, in terms of where we are at the moment, um, we're in the middle of the uh, COVID, in the middle of the COVID crisis, we in fact had an exceptionally good Q1 performance. Um, that was that. That was based on some bought, bought forward sales, particularly in consumer, um, whereby a lot of people were buying our our our, our, um, our pain pain relief products, toothpaste, and generally buying across the board. So we had a, a very strong performance from con- the consumer side. Within pharma, we also had a, a relatively good performance. Uh, the business grew by six percent. Um, for the year, we had previously given guidance of flat to down, and a lot of that was COVID-related. And then in vaccines, um, we had a reasonally good first quarter driven mostly by Shingrix, our shingles vaccine. Um, but for the year as a whole, um, despite having a very strong first quarter, our guidance for the full year has, it has remained as earnings to be down 1% to 4% for the year. Um, so that's where we are at the moment, and um, I'm not sure how much detail you want to go to on any individual parts of the business, but please ask some questions. And, and I would just add, you know, obviously given um, the COVID crisis that is ongoing, um, Emma, our CEO, spent quite some time on our earnings call highlighting the um, work and efforts that we are um, making to to try and tackle that. So we have a number of collaborations in place. Um, mainly around the vaccine side, um, to look to develop a vaccine there and we can go into that in more detail. Um, and we are also, you know, um, providing as much support as we can to all of our employees through this period as well and, and overall trying to continue kind of operating as normally as possible, um, which as James said from Q1 results, you know, I think we were pleased with how the business was able to, to respond. Um, to Most pharma companies are talking about there's a demand surge uh, across the board. Is this is this 
is this more advanced buying by the consumers or it is more uh, sort of buying by the distributors just that so that you know they can sort of have more supply available if it's needed sure i mean i think that's a good question it's a mixture of the two so um if we look just at our pharmaceutical business um there was definitely some buy-ins from uh, from wholesalers, um, and and that was that 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 benefited our. I mean, the one business where we had a big benefit was in HIV. So, in HIV, we had eight percent growth. All of that growth, we believe, was COVID-related. Um, a proportion of that would be wholesalers having a little bit more stock, but also prescription lengths has been increasing slightly um, in in a number of markets. Europe. Europe was Europe had the biggest benefits in the quarter. Now we feel that that was all um, wash out. I'm just talking HIV in particular just at, just at the moment. We feel that that will wash out over the rest of the year, and that we still think HIV will be broadly flat for the year. But we've had a lot of sales brought forward, so potentially part of the wholesalers, and then also some. Um, so, rather say if, if you're a, if you're an HIV sufferer, you will have 12 months of supply during the year. In Q1, you may have bought extra, some extra months of supply that you'll probably still buy the same for the year. Um, uh, and then also the wholesalers. And then in, um, in, in other businesses where in respiratory, you have had some COVID-related increased demand, whereby I think a number of, uh, a number of astronauts here, PD sufferers, have probably been addict buying extra stocks. So rather than having one ventilator inhaler in the house, they may have an extra ventilator inhaler in the house. But also, we think that potentially, given that it's COVID to respiratory disease, people's compliance with COPD and asthma may get may increase may increase over, over the period. Um, on the vaccine side, at the moment, there wasn't that much of a COVID impact, but um, potentially over the balance of the year, particularly in Q2, um, where a vaccine is more discretionary. Um, we, we feel that um, some people might not necessarily have the vaccine, take the vaccine. So our Shingrix, our Shing, Shing, Shingrix, our Shingles product had an exceptionally good Q1. But if you actually look at the prescriptions at the moment, prescriptions are down very sharply in Q2 because people aren't going out of the house. They aren't going and getting a discretionary vaccine in Shingrix. We think the demand for that will come back over the balance of the year. Other vaccines where we might get an impact would be things like our hepatitis portfolio where a large proportion would be for adults and would be for travelling. So if people aren't travelling, there'll be less use of, of, of um, our hepatitis vaccines. And the same might be true of things like the meningitis portfolio. But on the paediatric side, um, we feel people still certainly be going and getting their little babies and their infants um, vaccinated. Um, on the consumer side, there has been some, there have been some sort of big, big benefits in Q1, so our, our, our continuing business is, I think, by 13% um, in the quarter, um, and that is, that is well ahead of our, our traditional underlying demand, which has been sort of low to mid-single digits, low to mid-single digit growth. Now, partly this, um, within all the businesses, that will be wholesalers. Partly there will be what they call in, in consumer, that will be called pantry stocking. So people will be certainly having more supplies of things like painkillers, pain, pain paracetamol, uh, cotton cold medicines, um, and also another area would be vitamins. 
Sai, you you made an interesting point that obviously distributors and wholesalers are also buying. I mean, are you do you suspect that the inventory levels at the distributor level distributors have gone up, uh, say, from a four to six weeks window to about three to four months? I, I, do you think it's that kind of? Uh, I, I mean, I, I don't think we've got any numbers, any specific numbers on that, but I mean, it, it vary by area. Um, but um, you can certainly see. I mean, it's, it's very, very difficult to give a give a give a number. But I mean, you, it may. I thought it might be weeks. It certainly wouldn't. It certainly wouldn't be months. No. So uh, just on inhalers or respiratory business, right? I mean, is the is the growth across the brands significant, or just a couple of brands are doing well, and which are which are those? Okay, I mean. It's, it's slightly complicated by the um, we, we've got quite a broad respiratory portfolio. So I think two of the products which are actually within our established respiratory portfolio, so our older products, off patent products, two of, the, two of the products within there that we called out in the course were Asfair, which is an, an ICS LABA. That is generic. We do have an authorised generic, and there's one other generic in the States, and XUS is it has gone generic. So I think on that verified ad there, we call that out as having some benefits in the quarter. Um, and then the other one is Ventolin, um, um, which is a, which is a Saba, um, so short-acting bronchodilator. So that definitely had a benefit in the quarter, but that, again, is generic globally. And in the U.S., it's a slightly complicated market. And there, are, there are three molecules in the same, but there are now generics to the top our two other products and the authorised generics. So I think on those two we did get a benefit, but because they're generic, it wouldn't be seen as much. And then if you look at our Ellipsa portfolio, so our, <coughs> our newer respiratory products, which are all on patents, within those, um, the pricing in certainly in the ICS lab, which is which is which is bio in the states. Um, that has been suffering from lower prices, but has some rebate adjustments in the corporate benefits. And I think in terms of stocking or any increased demand, we did have very strong demand in that portfolio, but we, we didn't we didn't pull out exactly how much of that was from um, was from stocking. But it was probably relatively it would probably be smaller than those. But the two again, I'd pull out would be Ventolin and Adfa. So I think assuming that uh, there is there is real demand. From the consumers, uh, are you see? So, is this uh, respiratory portfolio buying largely by hospitals because they're just stocking up, or uh, or this demand is at the wholesale level, or is it at the consumer level? So, if you if you have some idea, it be Yeah, I'm guessing we can really split that out, but. Um, I mean, Ventolin, for example, it's, um, that has been used in some, for some COVID patients, um, in the hospital setting. Um, but in terms of our respiratory portfolio, it's generally a, um, it's generally not, not, it's generally not a hospital setting. It's more of a retail, a retail setting. So, um, it would be, you know, people in the community using the products. Um, yeah, so basically they're generally you know, general GP products rather than hospital products, or there will be some hospital element of that. Sure. And do you suspect that, uh, as you said, you have not revised your expectations for the year? Uh, so do you think, uh, especially, I'm asking about a respiratory portfolio, do you think, how soon do you think destocking will play out and, you know, 
demand to such high levels will subside? Um, again, that's very difficult to judge. It depends on how fast the um, how long the COVID crisis carries on for. Um, but I think certainly for I mean where, where HIV is concerned, I would expect quite a lot of that to reverse in the second quarter. Um, and as I said at the outset, I think for HIV, we would expect HIV to be growing, to be flat this year. It was up eight in Q1. So certainly a lot of that will reverse, um, probably a lot, a lot over the second quarter. Um, but then with respiratory, it's probably less easy to gauge because it's probably more of a complicated, complicated situation by country. Um, but, you know, there has been increased demand relating to COVID. I mean, we have got some products that are effectively are, you know, stronger brands in, in respiratory, such as Trilogy. So that will be continuing to, you know, grow strongly and increase share and go into, they move into newer markets. But the other element you're going to be getting at the moment is less people are going to their doctors or going to the doctors less often, then there'll be less switching of patients. So, when you've got a growth product, it's going to be much harder for that to, you know, the growth pattern to continue, continue. And that's probably evident within our HIV portfolio where we have been switching, uh, where patients have been moving from our traditional three drug regimens to two drug regimens, which are as effective as three drug regimens. Um, and you've seen over, over the last few weeks, particularly in the States, you've seen prescription data has gone relatively flat. But we, we hope that will start, and we have got some very good momentum with some of those products, and we hope that will pick up as the year goes on. Sure. So, uh, particularly on for inhalers, do you think in this environment when medical reps are not able to see the doctor as often, uh, uh, do you think that generic inhalers, uh, uh, inhalers which have gone generic, are likely to do better? And the, 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 the reps are still talking to doctors. Um, so you're still getting virtual meetings. Um, I think in terms of, you know, will generics be better or not, um, it, it's difficult to tell. I mean, and I think, I mean, especially with inhalers, depending on the um, level of substitutability with a new inhaler, a patient might require training um, to ensure appropriate adherence and use of um, the new inhaler. So. Um, you know, you could see how that might be challenging actually at this time given um, the constraints that we're currently under. But I think as Joe says, it's very difficult to know. Yeah, and so in some areas the inhalers are very, very different. So um, for a, and if you think of a typical COPD patient, they're generally more, more elderly. Um, and in some of the inhalers it, it can be quite complicated. It's, it's you know, the case of, you know, manipulating your hand and it's say you've got co- comorbidity, something like arthritis, that would make it much harder. So in some areas, yeah, potentially, but I think, as Daniel says, says it, yeah, you, you sometimes have to turn people out to use new inhalers if they haven't used them before. Just moving on to vaccines, right? I mean, do you want to just quickly lay out your vaccine, uh, briefly your vaccine portfolio and tell us about what are your plans for the COVID-19 vaccine? Okay, so um, I'll start off with I'll talk through the portfolio, and then I'll, I'll let Daniel do talk about COVID vaccine at the end. Um, so, in terms of our current portfolio, it's really split into um, into four buckets. So, firstly, we have men- a meningitis portfolio, 
Um, this is the portfolio we bought from Novartis back in 2015. So back in 2015, I mentioned earlier that we did, we did a consumer JV with Novartis, but at that time, we actually did a three-way deal, and part of it was to buy Novartis's um, vaccine portfolio. Um, and the, uh, that, 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 that portfolio was essentially two meningitis products, Menteo and Bexero, which at the time were very small, but last year that's now roughly a billion pound franchise in meningitis. Um, it's a relatively, so we've got Bexero for, for meningitis B, and then we've also got, um, uh, then we've also got Menveo, which is the more broad spectrum, the ACWY um, meningitis um, vaccine. Those have been sort of growing at a double-digit rate. Um, as I said, it's about a billion of revenue versus the 7.2 billion last year. And that's been a good grower, but during the COVID crisis, potentially less people or, or, or less people will be going and getting vaccinated. Um, and this is... This is a vaccine that college students would get when they get back to university in the States, for example, so that bet zero. So that portfolio short-term might get impacted, but it's a good, strong portfolio. Um, we then have a flu uh, portfolio, which is, um, or effectively uh, flu vaccine. <coughs> this is just a, a, a normal flu vaccine. It's not sort of the ones for the elderly, the high-dose one. It's just a standard flu vaccine. Last year in the States, we sold around 46 million doses. Um, ourselves and Sanity are the biggest two players over there. We had the upgrade from the trivalence, the quadrivalent vaccine over the last, over the last three to four, um, last, last three to four years. So now, now it's all quadrivalent vaccines. It's a good business. We're very much Northern Hemisphere based. Um, last year, US was about 400, just over 400 million, about 540 million. Um, and that business, it's a good business, but these vaccines are made in eggs, so people have said, well, can you upgrade your, your flu capacity because of COVID? Well, no, because you have to buy these eggs, but you order them a year in advance. Um, but it's a good portfolio, and we should do okay this year. It won't be spectacular growth, but hopefully we'll be able to increase our capacity, and hopefully pricing last year was actually negative, so hopefully pricing this year would be okay. Um, I'll leave the most exciting one till last, but then we also have an established vaccine portfolio, which last year was about 3.8 billion. <coughs> that includes um, pediatric portfolio, which we, we which we think will continue to okay during at, at the moment. Um, we have hepatitis within there, which potentially could get hit by COVID because less people will be vac less people will be travelling less vaccination there. Part of that is pediatric, of course, as well. Um, and then we have other other vaccines, things like rotavirus, um, uh, for pneumococcal diseases, um, for um, HPV. Now, this established vaccine portfolio has generally been a pretty sort of flat business, so it's been plus or minus a few percent. Um, but that's the sort of the mainstay of the business, and it's very much a, very much a global business. Then the final vaccine I'll mention will be Shingrix. Um, Shingrix is a, is a vaccine for Shingrix. Um, it, it, it's got a large share of sales of 1.8 billion. Um, it's a vaccine where when we were developing it, there was another vaccine on the market, which is Merck's Zostavax. In our trials, 
Shingrix was, was essentially uh, more than 90% effective, um, and, it, and the, the loss of access was around 50% effective. And in the States, we got a preferential recommendation whereby if people get vaccinated for Shingrix tingles, they have to have Shingrix. So we have had very, very strong demand, but we have not been able to match, this, match, match that with, with enough supply with our existing facilities. So we've actually been able to increase capacity slightly on those facilities, um, but we're not going to have, enough, have any big upgrade, uh, uplift in production until around 2024 when, our new, when our, new, um, our new facility comes on stream. For the current year, we've said that we expect that 1.8 billion, so in Q4 it's about 530 million. We expect for the full year Q4 to be annualised with a little bit extra. Um, in Q1, we had a very strong number, but Q2, there will be a COVID-related impact on the business, so in, in terms of, of lower demand, but we still expect to come with our guidance for the year. But overall, that's sort of the general shape of our vaccine business. It's had very strong growth the last few years, driven by Shingrix, which went from virtually zero in 2018. It was roughly 800 million in 2019, um, sorry, 2017. It was roughly 800 million in 2018, about 1.8 billion last year, and that's driven very strong growth over the last few years. Um, we're also working on COVID, and I'll let Danielle go through that with you. Yeah, sure. So um, we have uh, a number of collaborations um, ongoing uh, with other pharmaceutical companies and other kind of research groups um, looking at uh, developing a COVID-19 vaccine. Where we're focusing is really on providing our um, innovative uh, adjuvant technology. Um, so, you know, an adjuvant is a key component of uh, boosting the overall efficacy of vaccines, hopefully, if it works well. Um, and also, and especially important in a kind of pandemic situation, it can reduce the amount of um, vaccine protein that's required per dose. Um, which means you could potentially scale up manufacture and deliver a much higher number of doses um, quicker uh, than you might otherwise be able to. So <clears throat> we have a number of collaborations uh, in place. Uh, one of the uh, largest ones that we announced um, just earlier in April, I suppose it must have been now, um, was with Sanofi. Um, so working with uh, a COVID-19 antigen that they have identified, putting our adjuvant with that, which is our kind of specific pandemic adjuvant. Um, so Shingrix vaccine that James talked about also has adjuvant technology within it, but it's a slightly different, um, a slightly different adjuvant. Um, and so, you know, we're progressing with that um, collaboration. We are hoping to have uh, phase one study start in the second half of this year um, and have said that we um, think it could potentially uh, be available uh, um, in the second half of 2021. So fairly quick timelines there. We do also have a number of other um, collaborations uh, with mainly some research um, uh, in institutions but also with some other biotech companies because, you know, obviously the chances of success in these things is, is quite challenging. Um, so we really want to partner uh, with as many uh, potentially viable antigens that 
uh, we think there are um, and help to kind of improve the efficacy and, and, and it helps with the scalability through the expertise that we have. Obviously, the fast uh, portfolio of vaccines that James has just talked you through. So, um, a lot of work going on for the team there, and I think over the coming weeks and months, we should uh, uh, continue to kind of update on the progress that we're making there. Yeah, my question is, if I look at the overall landscape in the U.S., I mean, we have been, you know, seeing specifically in the last, uh, you know, month or a couple of months, the number of drugs that have gone into shortage has shot up quite significantly, and it's not only in the injectable area, it also seems that a lot of, you know, drugs on the OSD, you know, has gone into shortage, which is also less to the USFDA, you know, uh, approving certain drugs at a faster than expected pace. So number one is why you you know you talked about higher amount of demand basically coming in from the dealers and distributors. I mean, can you talk a bit more about uh, you know the, the demand and supply scenario probably over the next you know the entire you know, year? How this is expected to pan out? And second is you know from your other peer companies, Darling and Dexy, you also understand that there seems to be a pretty strong growth. I mean, if you also talked about on the consumer portfolio. And given that this doesn't, uh, you know, really require a patient to go to the hospital, I mean, do we see going forward that the consumer business will continue to relatively outperform compared to the businesses that require patients to visit the hospital? Okay, so, yeah, that's that's interesting. I think in terms of um, supply, so if, if I start with the pharma side, then I'll, I'll let Daniel talk about consumer afterwards. Um, I think at the moment we have we have had some very strong demand for products, but in terms of supply, um, I think generally, um, from my understanding, we've been okay. So um, if you if you look across the portfolio, so certainly on HIV, essentially we had growth of eight percent in the quarter. Um, whereas it's, it's, it's a big glo- I'm talking globally. I mean, in the US, we were, we were reasonably strong. But I think in terms of demand and supply, we, we do certainly have adequate supply. I mean, we've got global supply. Um, so just generally, in terms of we have global supply chains, we would generally have at least two sources of, um, uh, generally have two sources of an API or a product that we need. Um, so I think in the States, yes, we have been able to match the demand. We do have manufacturing in the States. Um, we have, we've not got sort of some areas where, where we're not with areas we're not in that other companies may be in, whereby they have got shortages. But I think at the moment, generally things are fine. I, mean, I think there has been some very strong demand for Ventolin, um, but in some cases there are generics in those markets. There are other sources should people need sources for those. Um, it's probably more where you've got a specific product where um, you would generally have, um, you know, a, a limited level of demand that suddenly you're getting stronger demand. But for us, I think across our portfolio, that's we're generally okay. Whereas there are alternatives, it's probably where you haven't got an alternative where you may have a problem. Um, and then on consumer, I'll, I'll let Daniel talk about that in a second. This is the consumer, I think, yeah, in terms of supply and supply and demand and where where it's coming from. I'll let him talk to that. Yeah, sure. So, um, I mean, I think overall, and actually at Q1, um, we provided an updated um, category structure for the consumer business. So, following the 
uh, completion of the uh, Pfizer joint venture. Um, we've kind of set out now um, the categories within that business that we're focusing on. Um, and I think within each of those, there are obviously quite a different impact that's being seen. So oral health is a uh, large business for us, Tensine Toothpaste um, does very well. Um, we did see higher levels uh, of growth in Q1 than we would normally expect to see. And, you know, obviously that doesn't bring health benefits related to COVID. Um, so our expectation really is that the majority of that is probably pantry loading. And so through the remainder of the year, um, that, that will probably uh, be torn down by consumers and we'll see that impacted. I think um, in pain relief and respiratory health, so pain relief, some of our big brands like Advil, Panadol, and then respiratory, all of our kind of cough and cold products have obviously been seeing increased demand um, due to COVID. And, uh, you know, we have seen a pretty, um, you know, a lot of effort has gone into the manufacturing organisation being able to respond to that increased demand on the specific products where that's happening and in the markets where that's happening. Um, but again, you know, as much as some of that will be demand driven by consumers' usage, we do also anticipate that some of that will be um, just consumers stocking up and making sure that they have those products in their homes in anticipation for potentially getting ill. Um, and I'd say the other one that's kind of also been impacted, but it gets in a slightly different way, is our new category, vitamins, minerals and supplements. So this is a portfolio that Pfizer um, brought into the joint venture. Uh, they're brands like Centrum, uh, Calprate, and a U.S. Um, vitamin C brand called Emergency um, are all quite well known. And, and Emergency in particular has done phenomenally well um, over the last few months as consumers have obviously been very focused on um, looking after their health and taking any preventative measures that they can. Um, and, you know, obviously with most vitamins, you're meant to take them every day or on a kind of continuing basis. Um, and so there is a potential that through um, through the COVID-19 uh, crisis, we might see an increase in the user base of vitamins. Um, but I think it's probably a little too early to be sure about that. And there may well again be some stock up going on within um, that area. Um, so we really just need to see how that evolves. And I think the other kind of um, impacted trend um, within consumer through this process has been the increase um, in sales going through the e-commerce channel rather than through the traditional kind of brick and mortar stores. Um, and again, you know, that's obviously been driven very much by the current situation that we're in. Um, but there, there is a potential um, that some of that consumer behavior will continue to shift. And once we come out of this, um, we might see more um, consumers shopping online rather than going to source purchase these products. Um, so I think those are the main things that I'll highlight. I think the kind of supply and demand to date has been able to respond very effectively as needed. We tend to contract for our um, 
you know, raw materials, um, and things like that, a reasonable distance in advance. So we haven't seen too much of an impact um, from that yet, but obviously depending on how long the current situation goes on for, that may come into it. Um, but today, you know, I think the business has responded well to the increase in demand, and, and you can see that in the Q1 numbers. I think in Q2, you will start to see some of the drawdown coming through. If I look at, uh, you know, the overall treatment for, uh, you know, COVID itself, I mean, earlier it was doubted that SCQS, you know, was some kind of holy thing. And now, you know, uh, this remdesivir of Gilead uh, has also come through and there's an emergency with authorization. And the second line which you had also talked about is the vaccine. And if I look at the number of players in vaccine, we are looking at over 70, 80 players who are developing a vaccine for uh, you know, this uh, COVID-19. So, if you can give some, you know, clarity because there are a number of, you know, combination cocktail drugs that are, you know, basically being used. And where do we think that, uh, you know, uh, do we feel that... The yeah, sure. And we can, we can touch on therapeutics as well. Um, I mean, I think, obviously, since this um, virus has, um, you know, really taken off uh, any company with any product, um, either marketed or in the pipeline, um, that, you know, was viewed as to potentially um, have a treatment benefit, I think, has been exploring that, which is why there's obviously been a lot of news flow around that and a lot of potential candidates highlighted. Um, you know, we are also screening our pipeline of assets to see whether any of those might be potential treatment options. And I think, you know, while it seems like there's a lot of um, potential therapeutics out there, again, the probability of success with these is, is probably pretty low. Um, so you really do need to, I think, explore as many options as possible. And I think governments around the world are really encouraging companies and, and researchers to do that as well. So I think I think such a volume. Um, and similarly on the vaccine side, and I think from our perspective, you know, we believe that our um, real kind of competitive advantage and, and you know, skill within vaccine and expertise in vaccine comes through the uh, adjuvant platform and our ability to kind of scale and, and manufacture um, vaccines. So that's really what we're focusing on helping um, any company or, or researcher who has a uh, potentially interesting looking antigen to try to do um, because again you know, the probability of, of these all succeeding is, is extremely low in terms of I don't know if you want to add anything. Yeah, I mean we, we've got, <coughs> we do have some things like expertise in manufacturing distribution um, etc but I mean I, I think um, investor mentioned there are some 70, 80, 80 potential vaccines out there and it's, you know, as long as one of them, as long as one of them works and we, 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 want, we certainly want one of those vaccines to work but I think we do anything, anything we can do to help and the adjuvant that Daniel mentioned, that's, um, that's a different, it's a different one from Shingrix but it's one that was used in pandemic flu before so that was the H1N1 H1 flu back in the about the early 2010s. Um, mm. So that one was used before, so it's one that's been tried and tested. We do still manufacture it. Um, we have got facilities to make it, so um, 
in some ways something that we, we definitely have or something that's tried, tested, has been used, can, we can manufacture it, so we think that's an extremely important um, addition to the addition and help to you know, trying to combat um, COVID-19. The other thing we were trying to understand in these various approaches uh, for the novel vaccine, right, uh, what do you think will eventually happen and what are you know, the best case and worst case timelines in your view for getting a vaccine to the world? Sure. I think that's very, that's really difficult to answer from, um, I think in terms of where, if you, if you listen to the scientific experts, um, I think they're more saying it would be, it's probably, you know, it's not months away, it's probably, no, at least a year away before we get some sort of vaccine. I mean, there are various ones that are being tried at the moment. Um, if you think of a, of a normal vaccine, so if you looked at something like Fingrix, I mean, that probably took more than 10 years to get developed. And you've gotten very, very quick timelines. If you look back to a, let's say this was a, um, a bird flu or, um, then once you've got the, once you've got the antigen, then you will be making flu vaccines, you've got the technology, you've got the egg-based technology that you're using, so you're just changing, changing the adjuvants within, um, sorry, the antigen within the, va- within the vaccine, you're making it flu, but this is a totally new, this is a totally new disease, we've not made, made vaccines for, uh, for, you know, uh, coronaviruses before, um, and it could, and it, it probably will take time, but I think if you listen to scientific experts, they're sort of saying, you know, it could be sort of, you know, it could be 12 to 18 months away. And I think, you know, the important thing to, to think about is, you know, bringing a vaccine through that is successful is one thing. Being able to scale that um, and make it accessible and available to, you know, enough people that would need it are two very different things. Uh, some of the technologies being used in um some of the vaccines kind of going through development at the moment, you know, the the scale off of that is going to be almost as large a challenge as identifying and, and creating a efficacious and safe vaccine. Um, so I think that's an important thing to think about. And then also the safety follow-up. I mean, anything going into the clinic now, you know, you're going to want to have a, the, uh, you know, um, Regulatory agencies will want a minimum amount of safety data um, from when the vaccine is given as a follow-up period afterwards. Um, you see, the, for the most part, anyway, going to be healthy individuals that you're treating, even if they're in a high-risk group for COVID-19. You know, the, one of the most important things for vaccines is always safety, and, and frankly, that, that just takes time to demonstrate sometimes. What is the general cost to develop a novel vaccine? Um, I've not got that number off the top of my head. I mean, we spend, I think we spend about 600 million pounds on vaccines in a year, uh, on our development. And I think half of that is sort of line extensions, um, half of it is new vaccines. So, I mean, it's going to be in the hundreds of millions. But I, I mean, in terms of um, a, a specific number, that's very difficult to give. There's a lot of attention on bringing a COVID-19 vaccine through successfully. You know, governments and other kind of um, agencies are, are looking to support and supplement something where they can. But, you know, these things do still uh, cost 
um, a lot, but you know, the, the development piece is obviously one plus part. We talked about, and then also the manufacturing and, and the distribution and all of that as well. Um, but as James said, you know, ordinarily this would take a lot longer, so yeah. the type and timeline. Um, so uh, does that change? That normally you take about, I mean, you could take say ten years to develop the vaccine, yeah. and you'd be doing it in tens of thousands of you know healthy individuals, patients. So, I mean, the scale of of what you're doing is 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 pretty large. I mean, you, you could do it on a pharma trial. Um, so, if you know, for a rare oncology disease, you could be using hundreds of patients, tens or hundreds of patients. Here, you'd be doing tens of tens of thousands of patients. So, it, there's, there's a lot of generally for a vaccine. There'll be a lot of Daniel said this. You'd be having expedited timelines. But again, you know, efficacy is very important, but safety is exceptionally important too. If you wish to take this drug or take this vaccine to the world, uh, will you look for partners in emerging markets or will you go on your own? And I think in terms of the manufacturing of vaccines at the moment, we tend to keep vaccine manufacturing in-house and we do not tend to have partners. So we've got um, huge manufacturing facilities in Belgium. Um, it's two sites that are effectively right next door to each other. And that's when the majority of our global vaccine supply comes from. In terms of any any partners, well, or any licensing out, I, I, I'd have thought we'd do it ourselves. But then, I mean, with COVID, it's going to be very, very different. But in general, we would manufacture ourselves. Um, um, but and we're not licensed things out because you want to keep vaccines are giving to healthy individuals and you want to keep as much yeah, control over your manufacturing as possible. So very careful with partnerships. And I think with COVID, um, we, we, we will be going with another, a partner anyway, so there'll be more than just ourselves, ourselves to decide what happens. But I think you'd be very, you've got to be very careful who you go with. Uh, so how does the global parent look at India uh, you know, when it comes to new launches? So we have seen in the recent past, uh, uh, you know, uh, we have launches like uh, Nukala, uh, Infantrix, Hexa. So, uh, so this entire vaccine portfolio is quite exciting, right? And obviously it matches uh, your ambitions as well. So how does the parent look at India when it comes to new launches? I mean, India is, of course, one of our key markets. So um, certainly in the, sort of emerge, in the emerging markets, it's, it's very key. I mean, as to how we look at it specifically, that's probably not something that myself or Daniel would know. Um, but um, it's it's a key market both in farm and consumer. You know, within consumer, we we sold we, we sold our stake in JFK India consumer, but that was essentially um, Horlix and Boost and distribution of our farmer our, 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 our consumer products, which are now sold through Instant Unilever. But we're still a, you know, a, a major consumer healthcare player and a major pharma player. And I think a lot, you know, certainly in volume terms in India, we're very, we're quite big. But in terms of where sit, India would sit on the on the list of where we where we'd launch, how we'd launch, um, I mean that's probably more of a question for our, you know, probably our head of pharma rather than from for, for us. Okay, uh, so let me put it in another way. Uh, so, in terms of new launches, any specific uh, therapeutic uh, exposure you have, you'd like to have in India, say vaccines or to that extent, uh, the recently acquired Tesaro's oncologist, uh, like would you like to enter India's oncology market as well, uh, if you could share, you know, your views on this? Uh, 
Um, well, I thought certainly on um, on oncology. I mean, we've got um, at the moment our key asset is is a jeweler from Tesoro. There will be other products rolling out, but um, and there will be you know markets we would certainly launch out launch in first. But I mean. It, it, where India stands on that, I really, I really don't know. I mean, I'd have thought, you know, most important is probably the US, and then after that, um, you know, you've got a lot of the markets like, um, you know, Europe, European and Japan, but India is certainly a, certainly a very important market to us, but how and when and how, you know, and it also, de- it also depends on approval timelines, um, etc. And also when you've got limited supply, you will be, yeah, you, you have to um, allocate that supply appropriately. But India is certainly a, a, an important market to us. Okay. Uh, another question would be on this uh, Zantac episode, you know, the cancerous uh, interrotins which were uh, found in the product. Uh, any update you could uh, help us, uh, uh, you know, guess, uh, given the fact that, you know, this drug was an important drug uh, in the entire healthcare system, and even from an Indian perspective, it was a materially important drug. So when can this drug come back in the market, or you feel uh, it's uh, still a long way out? Okay, I mean, I'm on that, but I think in terms of in terms of perspective, I mean, Zantac is a prescription product. Um, I mean, we've got virtually I don't think we've got any sales of Zantac as a prescription product, and as an over-the-counter product, um, uh, we I think we sold that in most markets. Um, in terms of the litigation, I, I haven't got the latest on that, but we'll, we'll see if we can get back to you on that before the end. Yeah, I've just looked it up, Jane. Oh. So, um, you know, we initiated a voluntary recall at the pharmacy and retail level um, as a precautionary action, uh, and have also suspended manufacture um, and have a kind of root cause investigation ongoing. Um, so, until the conclusion of the FDA review, um, you know, which I think we're still waiting on. We we haven't got any kind of um, you know updates really to provide at this point, and, and we haven't commented specifically on the litigation. Um, all we have said is that obviously we take this issue very seriously. Uh, patient safety is our utmost priority. Okay. Uh, one final question on uh, you know. Uh uh, some four or five months back, uh, the CEO made a comment saying that he wants to be an asset like lean medicine machine uh, to that extent. So, so would it be fair to assume that uh, uh, in most of the developing countries, you will not have your own manufacturing base? Is that a right understanding? Not, not necessarily. I mean, no. I mean, we have we do have a fairly extensive global manufacturing network at the moment, um, and we do have a number of um, sites in in the developed market. Um, and you know, I mean, James mentioned obviously our vaccines manufacturing capability, which is all based in Belgium. And you know, I think the level of expertise that we have there and that the workforce there now has as a result. In some areas like that, it, you probably wouldn't look to move it. Um, we have been doing a supply chain rationalisation program for a number of years, and that is still ongoing. But I don't think we've given any kind of specific guidance as to the location of um, any of those or where we sort of have a preference for uh, locating our facilities versus not. You know, I think we 
um, like to have um, a, a reasonable geographic spread um, that complements, obviously, our, our sales base as well. Yeah. So, so just want to understand as investors, uh, what approach to vaccine development should be tracked? Where do you think uh, there is more likelihood of success? Okay, so I think on uh, on the vaccines pipeline we have at the moment, um, I mean, I mean, just to put it into context, in vaccines it's extremely difficult to find the blockbuster vaccine and a lot of the market is quite commoditized. So I think in terms of global vaccines, there are any, really are only through vaccines or through blockbuster vaccines. Um, which would be uh, which would be Gardasil, um, Prevnar, and also you've, now you've got Shingrix. So in terms of finding the next vaccine blockbuster, that is not always that easy. So we we did, we did actually, if you, if you wanted to look on our website, we we had a vaccine investor event last September where we we got new management within vaccine that was from last year. So then we went through our vaccine some business and also through the portfolio. And I think in the portfolio, so in the portfolio, a, a big proportion of um, uh, of vaccines R and D is <coughs> is with line extensions, um, and and uh, but in, and and sometimes it may be sort of moving from you know hexavalent, you know, hexavalent to sort of from, from um, trivalent to pen, to, to pentavalent, to hexavalent vaccine. So it may be vaccine combinations. But in terms of our pipeline at the moment, there are two that we would I'd like to pull out, two that we will be getting some key readouts this year. So the first one is a COPD vaccine. Um, it's not a vaccine against COPD, but um, seven, but 75% of exacerbations within COPD are linked to infections, and 30 to, 30 to 45% are associated with two bacteria. Um, and this is a vaccine that is to treat those bacteria. So, um, and, that, and, then if you, and then if you can sort of vaccinate against those bacteria, then that will stop a number of the exacerbations in COPD. So we have a we have some key readouts in the second half of this year, um, and then that that will decide on whether you know we, going forward we're going to be spending more more money on our COPD vaccine. So hopefully, you know, hopefully that will be positive, and we get more on that. And then the other area we have is um, RSV. So on RSV, I think we've got two data readouts uh, later this year. Um, so on RSV, we've actually got three vaccines. Um, We've got one for older older adults, which is actually adjuvantive, and then we also have a, a maternal one and a pediatric one. Um, and on so and we, and we we will have some data readouts on I think a couple of those later on in the year. So those are the two other ones I would pull out. Um, our full vaccine pipeline is laid out in most of our materials, and there will be other ones in there. But the main near-term ones will be the therapeutic COPD one, and then the the RSV ones. But given the lengths of trials, although we might move into later stage trials, those wouldn't be potentially. Hopefully, if it's successful, those potentially wouldn't be on the market until sort of the middle half of this decade. Uh, thank you both, uh, um, James and Daniel, to conduct this call. Uh, thank you everybody on the call as well for taking part.